Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose prolific work as an author and host has elevated the discussion of identity in pop culture. As a writer, he's created Strange Lore, a graphic novel steeped in queerness and horror. Also, he weekly serves as the co-host of Megasheen, a podcast dedicated to geek and gay culture from the queer people of color perspective. Please welcome to the show writer, host, and horror aficionado, Victor Kearney. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited to have you here. (laughs) I'm happy to be here, too. This is really fun. Uh, We were kind of ships in the night trying to plan this out for a while. But I guess that happens when everybody's got their own podcasts to do, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and all other stuff, so yeah. Exactly. Well, now that I have you here, why don't we just kick things off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think horror, like, is a draw to audiences? But why horror? You know, horror is just so exciting. The feeling, the emotions around it is really exciting. I remember um, when I was a kid, now I'm old. So when I was a kid, I remember seeing the commercial for magic and that the anthony hopkins film yes okay that freaked me out because that puppet was not only just ugly and just the biggest head i've ever seen but it just looked creepy and i already was afraid of alfred e newman from mad magazine so it was just that look of just that face and i just thought they were the same people but that used to scare me but excite me like even though i was scared of it i had to keep seeing it i had to go find things with it and back in the day, you know, to see like movies late night, like there was Carrie, there was Jennifer, and there was um, all these other movies that were coming out. It just really excited me. I felt like there was so much more with these movies than any other thing I was watching. Halloween. Um, and then later on, you had like The Hearse and all these other things in the 80s. And so horror was just so exciting to me. And it just felt like it was giving me more than the action movie like anything that Arnold Schwarzenegger was doing was like okay that's great but horror gave me so much more and I just love that feeling and I will never forget the feeling I had when I first read um what was that book um scary stories you can tell in the dark the first time I saw the cover and saw those pictures that just woke up so much and I feel like that not only did I want to know more about horror I wanted to write it and I wanted to be a part of it and um this is going to sound psychotic, but I used to like when we used to play chase or whatever. When I was a kid, I used to like shake my head really fast because, you know, back in the day when you watch horror movies, when the killer was after someone, they always looked like they were shaking. Oh, so right. I, I used to do that just to like, I'm after you or whatever. So, yeah. So <laughs> that was, so you created your own camera yeah, perspective. It was my own <laughs> weird world of, you know, if I'm chasing you, it's going to be like that type of thing. So horror is just, exciting it just challenged me it just gave me so much and i love it so much uh i love that you reference scary stories to tell in the dark Mm -hmm. because uh as of the time of this recording they're about to make a new movie yes about that that collection how do you feel about that because i know for a lot of people that series was sort of foundational Mm -hmm. in the way that goosebumps was to a specific generation or whatever a lot of kids discovered spookiness because of those Mm -hmm. books yes i'm you know, I'm excited for it. I, you know, seeing some of the the people or the creatures they're using in it, um, is going to be exciting. Especially they're using that woman from that one um, haunted house story, the one that with that face that's that was on the cover for many books. Um, I'm excited for it um, because it looks it will be fun, and you know, hopefully they will do it right. I hope I'm not bored, but again, it's going. It seems like it's going to be a fun movie, so I'm, I'm open to it. Yeah, I'm excited to check it out. It's weird as an adult, even yeah. though I engage with so much horror content and have for so much of my career, and I love it and I live in it. Yeah. There's something about that particular series that when I think about it, I still kind of get like heebie-jeebies because it yes. scared me as a kid. So yeah. it, it goes back to that childhood terror. There was a story in uh, one of the books about a scarecrow who skins- Oh, Harold. Yeah. yeah, where he skins the people and yeah. leaves the, sc- the skin out to dry. That scared the hell out of me as yeah. a kid. It was that. Uh, in the very first book, it was the story about something coming down the chimney, but it was coming down as, like, as the head and the arms. Like It wasn't even a, a whole body. It was like pieces of it. Um, the pictures by Alvin, I think his name was Alvin Schwartz. Or not, was it Alvin Schwartz? Or whoever, no, Steven something, um, who drew those pictures. It was just so creepy and there was one picture with um the main character of the book was like 
coming up the stairs. And it was the way he looked so creepy coming up the stairs. And that book just frightened me so much. I will only read it on Sunday mornings. So I was in the third grade and that book, and it was banned. I didn't know that, but we had it way back when I was a kid. In third grade, I, I took it out of the library and only read it on Sunday morning and then put it back in a drawer. I never looked at it and tried to take it back to school. And I thought I was done with the book until my sister's. Uh, when they were born and growing up, they order all those books from, from Scholastic. And so it was always <laughs> in the house. Uh, so oh, before we move on, yeah. I want to say that Carrie is a movie that has been mentioned so mm-hmm. many times over the course of Dead for Filth, usually mm-hmm. with relation to queer identity and mm-hmm. discovering otherness. But I think you're the very first guest in the history of the show <laughs> to reference the movie Jennifer. <laughs> and so I just wanted to, uh, one, point that out because I don't know if audience members of the of a newer generation know yeah. that after Carrie, there were a lot of Carrie ripoff movies. And yes. one of them was this movie called Jennifer, yes. where she like had psychic powers with snakes. Was that? Yeah, um, apparently she was. And it's interesting because I grew up in Tennessee and Kentucky. And so there was always this belief that you was able to work the Lord's work through snakes. And they would actually put their hands in boxes and pull the snakes out and use snakes to heal people. And that was a part of the story with Jennifer was she was able to talk to him. I think in the movie, her father was like, you have the gift child and <laughs> all that stuff. But it was just an interesting, it was a long movie, but it was an interesting movie to where the end was really something that just got me because the way it was shot, the glow around her when she was using these powers and the snakes around her, it was so beautiful. I loved that so much. And that movie just stuck with me for many, many years. Um, And it's funny because I think about all those other movies that came out, as you was mentioning, like Ruby and then the, the, the invitation of Sarah and the, and the one of the best ones that no one talks about really, I think it's called, is it called the, not the gift, the it, spell? The spell, yeah. yeah. And that one right there, that fight scene at the end was really cool. I really enjoyed that. I, I wish if they're going to remake one, I think the spell will be fun to remake. You know what I like about it is when you talk about how you were drawn to these movies because you feel like they gave you more. Mm-hmm. I think there's probably a truth to that for anyone who's drawn to horror. Cause I mm-hmm. remember when I used to see the movies on USA up all night, which was sort of how I oh, got yeah. pulled in. Yeah. Uh, I started to kind of make the connection. These aren't the kinds of movies I'm seeing at the movie theater. Mm-hmm. This is not the land before time yeah. or whatever, you know, is playing at the multiplex. It felt like, <laughs> Oh, there's this whole like other world. Yeah. And I don't know, I guess because you and I both spend so much of our careers talking about, Uh, queer identity and how Mm -hmm. it connects to pop culture when a movie especially these ones that feel like off the beaten path or feel like they exist outside of the mainstream is is there a queer connection in your mind to that like are we drawn to that because of our queerness or not i think so because with some of those movies it was always they were picked on and they were teased um and when you have those particular parts that's something you can identify with um and if you had the power to change that, whether good or bad, you want that. And you want someone to understand you. Like, I, I, I always bring up Carrie because it's it's such a great movie, the original. Um, and there are moments in there where I actually tear up. And there's moments where I'm like, you could have done more. Um, which I think when I think about it, 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 it just mirrors what we go through. Right. Uh, feeling you know, ostracized and lost. And then we find a way to change the game. We don't want to be a part of the team anymore. We want to just tear it apart. And, you know, I remember seeing Carrie and feeling like, wow, that makes so much sense years later. Um, then seeing Jennifer, um, seeing stuff like uh, Mirror Mirror, where it's like, wow, you see what happens. And Mirror Mirror was out when I was a little bit older, but where it really kind of stuck with me, like if I had the ability, I would do some of these things as well. I wouldn't kill anyone, but I would like make people know, like, don't, you know, screw with me. Right. So I think a lot of that, for a lot of us, we find ourselves in those um in the in, in the shoes of those characters because we really want to f- figure out a way to come out on top and let people not pick on us but to somewhat respect us and slash fear us mm-hmm. so yeah and also like i think of 976 evil oh because, i love 976 because evil. yeah the actor was gay so therefore yeah. i'm like it just makes that made sense to me 
that I was like, yeah, if this is the life that we live, we want to belong to something. We want to be a part of something, but now we have the ability to just change it up. We will tear it apart just to make it fit our new world. Uh, so when you were talking about your early connections to horror and how you were always drawn to it, and then uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark kind of was the pivot point where you're like, oh, I, this is a world I feel like I could live in. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about sort of your trajectory in the way that – usually I ask guests what mm-hmm. was the the moment that you thought, oh, this is something I want to do, but mm-hmm. you said that. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at this book mm-hmm. – did you decide around then, oh, I want to be a writer or, oh, I want to try and make movies or what was what was your path into the world of pop culture? Um, I think it was after I think it was after um, seeing um, Midnight Offerings. Um, and for those who don't know that, that's another TV movie. It had Melissa Sue Anderson in it, and one of the actresses from the Walton. So it had the most purest white women <laughs> playing these roles. One was evil. One was good. Uh, but it was something that also drew me into witchcraft and a little bit of bewitched got me into witchcraft, but this was like a different thing about, whoa, this is what happened when you're the seventh daughter of a seven daughter and the powers that you had. Right. I think that got me into start like looking up things. And back in my day, we had to use the, the encyclopedia and dictionary and, you know, the library became my friend because as a weird queer kid in a small town, there's nobody to connect. So the library was your friend. And so there I was looking up all these books about witches and everything. And I was thinking, well, I'm going to do my own thing. So I wrote a play. um, And I wrote a play called Eve and Eve. It was so silly. But it was about um, a girl. And I think I try to make like a Greek mythology story. But Zeus liked her. Hera made an evil twin of her. And I just use witchcraft and all that stuff in that. But it was so fun because we actually had to put it on um, in class. And we had twins in my school. So they played the role. And I was like, wow, everybody liked it. I think from this, I'm going to keep writing stories. I wrote another story called The Midnight Clock. So stupid. I won't say it was stupid. But it was based off a TV movie I saw where it was about a couple moved to this neighborhood. There was this clock in the house. And when it hits midnight... It shows all the secrets of the neighborhood, and everybody was uh, everybody was a part of an evil coven, and that's what it showed. This was a movie. This was a TV movie where it was like a couple moved to a, a a new neighborhood, and all of them were witches or something like that. Oh, I would like to see that. I can't remember what the name of it was. I have to Google it again just to figure out like what the name of it was. But I wrote that in the eighth grade, and my teacher got concerned, and so she wrote my mom. She was like, "He's writing about." witchcraft and satan and again this is in tennessee i was to say in the south i can see this not being like given a positive yeah response but it was that moment i just like okay if i'm getting this reaction from things that i'm writing i'm going to keep doing a little bit of writing stuff so that kind of sparked my whole writing career if you want to say that now when your teacher reacted against it was there a part of you that kind of liked that a little I bit? i did because i was already <laughs> weird so they just gave me this new thing up it, it started a rumor about me having being a witch or having powers believe it or not that began this weird rumor and i remember a friend of mine named stephanie little i'm sorry stephanie um now she already know this but they did this ouija board game one night and they asked if i had powers and apparently it said yes so that became this thing that fueled more rumors about me being a witch, and I kind of ran with that. Hey, you know, if the Ouija board says so. <laughs> yeah. Then, you know, I am. Yeah, know. right? Who yeah. are we to dispute the Ouija board? <laughs> uh, and so from uh, scandalizing your teachers and, and your classmates, it seems, uh, did you uh, always think that you were going to have a professional track as a writer? Did you? Was that what you were going to go to school for? Or? No. I. It was just something I did for fun. And mm-hmm. then when I... I got into comic books in high school. You know, I did my own little comic just for myself. It was no words. It was just pictures because I knew what the story was. Right. But I didn't really think about this as a career until I got here. When I moved here and I started working at USC, um, I started um, thinking about, like, could I actually write scripts? Would that be fun to do? I, I took a class in college and did really well. And so I was thinking maybe... You know, I can get into the program as USC, for God's sake. So I got into the summer program, and that's when I really kind of thought about, yeah, I could probably do this as a career slash, you know, side career, whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, that was that moment I realized I want to really do it. 
Now, you mentioned your uh, fandom of comic books. Yeah. Uh, one thing I like to talk about when uh, comics come up on the show, mm-hmm. um, and I want your take uh, mm-hmm. on this as well as a few other things, is do you think that there is a kinship between the world of horror and the world of comic books? Because I find a lot of people yeah. who like one like the other. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think so. I think with comic books, you're able to really travel to different types of worlds and, and ideas and really put that all on paper. I think it really gives the artists opportunities to really just blow up in the sense of like, let's just really give everybody a mind trip here. Um, I think of the classic books like, you know, Eerie and Creepy that just really gave us great stories. Um, and then I remember Creepshow. And when Creepshow came out, that was kind of comic based. And when I got a hold of the comic, because you could actually get it, um, or get it, I got it like years later. It was just neat to look back at it and look at, you know, how it kind of matched the whole comic world and even from the panels to how the stories went. Um, I feel like the kinship is just very strong. So I think for a lot of us, it was our way of just really putting our thoughts on paper and seeing how that plays out, but also as people who were the artists to really put those weird image, those images out there um, and really try to challenge, you know, the reader about what was happening in the story. So I think there, there, there's a happy marriage there because it just tells us everything we need to know about the story and, take us, and takes us on kind of all types of journeys and things in your head. If you, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm just rambling here, but I just like, yeah, it just really gives us so much. And so it is a kinship. Well, now the loaded question. What are okay. the standout <laughs> comics that you love the most? Um, always X-Men, Wonder Woman. Um, I will always love creepy. I even try to have some of the old creepy ones, old creepy books. Um, New Mutants, Teen Titans. And one story that was somewhat creepy and I love it and I will always love it is the Milkman Murders. The Milkman Murders? I don't think I know this one. Yes. This was a fascinating story. It was a very short, I think it was like four four or five issues. And it's about a housewife that just goes mad. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Was that that was that a main imprint or no? Um, not a main. I think it was a part I think it was Top Cow or Image. It was one of the two. Interesting, interesting. Uh so something I always like to ask, and this is a very divisive question when comic <laughs> books come up. Uh, but one of the conversations that we have a lot on the show is how uh, the idea of drag itself is putting on a persona. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily about gender illusion always, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a, a, taking a personality and stepping into it fully. Do you think there is a world where superheroes, uh, in some way, superheroes are a form of drag? Hmm. Yes. To a degree. I think when you put on the costume, sometimes the costumes are just really outrageous or it just really just express, I guess, the the powers that you have in some ways. You know, you have... Wonder Woman, who to me was the first drag queen, <laughs> um, in a way, because the big hair and the bracelets and the boots and the lasso. I think, yeah, it's a little bit of that because it, you put on a new persona. It's putting on this persona that, you know, that that changes the outlook of the situation that's happening. You know, when you see Superman, you you have a different frame of mind. It's hope. It's happiness. You see Batman. It's fear and you know who knows and you see wonder woman you see like strength and power so with drag queens when you see them in a persona you see them as whatever they are trying to convey in their outf- in their in their outfits or a look or how they do they make up so yeah it's a former i think it's a former drag i'll buy that yeah i've always mm-hmm. kind of i, I love that question because mm-hmm. some people uh get very very um no, absolutely not. And other people are like, yeah, of course. So yeah. uh, I always kind of view it as, um, you know, uh, drag, the idea is drag in a way. It's sort of like the, you put on a mask and you become who you really are mm-hmm. or a bigger version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, Bruce Wayne 
is kind of not interesting, but Batman is. But yeah. Batman is the truest form of Bruce Wayne, yeah. and he had to put on a mask to become that. And yeah. that to me is pretty draggy. Yeah, so, I yeah. mean, you think about the original storm, like original Storm's outfit. I mean, that headdress, this cape, that big hair, and then when she wasn't wearing it, I mean, when she first came out, she had like this little small headdress. Her kept her hair hidden. She wore glasses, so you wouldn't see her blue cat eyes. It's yeah, you you look at Storm in those days, and that cape and those high boots and everything <laughs> is completely drag and i think that because of that that her look wonder woman's look a lot of those looks inspired many of the drag queens today every drag queen has done wonder woman every drag queen has done some form of storm so you see it all the time well one thing i think superheroes and drag queens have in common is a lot of times their outfit outfits look amazing yeah and are completely impractical for the purposes True. of which because I definitely do not know that thigh-high boots in the midst of battle are uh, exactly the best idea, but you're going to look great. Well, it might because, you know, if that's, if that's all you're wearing, <laughs> it's like a form of pants. Like, it's like it will protect this much of you and whatever skin you have showing, that would be the most vulnerable part. But All right. True. Okay. I got it. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, so this kind of leads a little bit into your love of comic books, your love mm-hmm. of horror, I think, leads us right to the gates of Strange Lore, which mm-hmm. is your own graphic novel mm-hmm. queer horror project. Could mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about the genesis of that and mm-hmm. just uh, the project in general? Um, the genesis came in two parts. So I remember when I was in grad school, I had to go to New York City for a job interview, and my crazy butt decided to take a Greyhound bus all the way from Kentucky to New York. And while I was there, it was this this twink on the bus who looked like Spike from <laughs> Buffy. And he was reading um, a fan fiction of Spike and Angel. And so I was, he was like cosplaying as yeah, Spike while reading. Yeah, okay, you can say that. And so I was like looking over his shoulder and I was seeing some of the lines. I was like, okay. So basically, this is all about Spike and Angel screwing. Um, but it hit to me. It, it came to me. I was like, wow, you know, I mean, I watch Buffy. I get it. But there's really nothing out there for us. Right. So that was kind of the one thing that kind of stuck in my head. This kid is holding on to this printed out fan fiction of this story. And then later, um, when I lived when I moved here in Los Angeles, I had to review Twilight. Um, and, you know, Twilight was such a big phenomenon at the time. And I was sitting there watching it. I was like, okay. And then it hit me like, we really don't have anything for us like this. Like, we don't have... We have everything under, like, you know, when it comes to something super sexed and and sexualized, yeah. But just a supernatural story, no. Right. And we kind of did with Dante's Cove, but that just kind of went off the rails. So <laughs> um, looking at that, I was like, okay, I, I need to create something. And so when I got into the, uh, the summer program at USC for the film school, we had to write a script. Um, within six weeks for class. And I decided to like, I'm going to do this supernatural story with gay characters, with, with queer characters in it. Um, and of course the lead has to be of color because we don't really see that at all. Right. Um, and so I did it. Um, students liked it. The teacher liked it. I was like, okay, great. And then we took another class um, where we had to sell it to a producer. And my teacher was one of the producers of Frailty. And so um, he looked over it. It was four of us in the class. And basically your grade was determined by if someone would buy it. And he said he would buy it. And after thinking about it and seeing how people reacted, had a good reaction to it, I decided to, I, I really wanted to see what it looks like. I wanted to see it in some form or so fashion. And I was sitting going, I was sitting around going, okay, why not in a comic form? Right. Why not? So... Um, I sat down, kind of changed it up a little bit because there's a different script mode you have to use for uh, for comics. And so I switched it up, rewrote it for that, had to hunt down an artist, which took a while, but I found one. And uh, we started the process. It was a four-year process. Um, and we just worked through like what the pages would look like and how the story would look like. But overall, the genesis of it, trying to jumping back on the story itself, um, it was just based off my love of, of Greek mythology, of all mythologies. Um, Pan was a god that was so mysterious to me um, because there's not a lot about Pan. Pan was considered the first or last god. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that stuck out with me about Pan was he changed himself into 12 different versions of Pan. And I was thinking, well, that would be neat. What if he did that and created 
12 different versions of himself every generation. And right. so from that and everything else I always wanted to put in a story from like a queer character of color to magic and sorcery to horror, I just sat down and wrote it out and there's pretty much where Strange Lord came from. And what's really cool is uh, by creating this art in this this piece uh, in releasing it to the world, you not only fulfilled a story that you wanted to tell, mm-hmm. but I've been watching on uh, social media the people who are reading Strange Lore, mm-hmm. and it's like you said, there was a need for it because mm-hmm. we didn't have it. There is not just a queer supernatural story. It's mm-hmm. always sex-driven, but mm-hmm. this is actually romance. Mm-hmm. And then to have a queer person of color as the mm-hmm. lead, as you pointed out, we just are not seeing that. Mm-hmm. So... I'm loving watching just the response to you, the, this this uh, connection that you're having with the mm-hmm. readers. How's that feel to just know that you have made the thing that you always wanted to see yeah. and that people are responding? It's we- it's weird. It's uh, I don't know how to get used to it. Um, when I have people like write me, they'll write me or DM me. Um, just the emails alone has really just really just blew my heart up because it's like there are people out there and I forget there's a whole big country outside of Los Angeles, but there's people who are just looking for something. Right. And when we had the Kickstarter campaign and that went really well, it was just those messages of like, I've been looking for this. I've been waiting for this. And it's been really good just to see that. It's been really good to give them the book. And I think recently at WonderCon, when I was, I sold a book to, um, a young teen, a young teen, and the mom was like, "They really want this so bad. I can't believe this is here." And just to have the mom supporting the kid was so neat to watch. And that was like, "Wow, you're." Bu-. I said, like, "Yes, here's the book." She's like, "Can you sign it?" And I was like, I, "I okay." And I wasn't used to that. I'm not right. used to all of that. I didn't do this, and I said this recently to someone else. I didn't really do this for fanfare. I didn't do this for me to be like, "Look at me." I did this because I didn't want any kid of color, especially a queer kid of color, grow up to never see themselves in these type of stories that, you know, I love these stories and they love stories like that. I didn't want them to ever not see themselves in it. So this is about them. You know, you can take me all the way out of it. I wanted them to have that reaction. I wanted them to have something to look at. So one day they can always say there was a book for me and there was a character that looked like me in this. That's so important though. That's, Mm -hmm. that's the kind of work that our communities need. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm just so happy that people are finding it. Yeah, and there is volume two coming. There is volume two. Um, it's written. Uh, we just have to start the artwork for it. Um, I love volume two. It's very diverse. Um, someone told me that pretty much all the white characters you have are always evil. I was like, is that true? And I was like, yeah, it's kind of true. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's very diverse. Um, and I love. I love changing things around. Like if you're going to have vampires, just remix it. If you have werewolves, it can be something totally different. I love that fun freedom of like, I can just take all mythologies, throw them all in one pot, mix it together and change things around. So the next book will be, I will say better than the first. A sequel should always be better than the first. Um, And it's a lot in it. So I can't wait to show people. Well, I'm excited to see it. Yeah. Uh, So I will keep my eyes out and listeners should as well. Uh, And speaking of doing your part and continuing conversations about representation, I mean, the mission statement of Dead for Filth was to highlight the stories of queer creators, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the horror space. Mm -hmm. But you on your show that you co-host, Megasheen, are also highlighting queer stories Mm -hmm. in pop culture. Uh, And as I said, it is all about pop culture and geeks and games and all sorts of things from the queer person of color perspective. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about Megasheen and the creation of that, because it's such a cool show. I was very happy to be your guest at Halloween this year. And uh, it's it's so fun, and I uh, I'm just interested to hear how that came about, and uh, also to point my listeners towards it. Yeah, you know, Megasheen was something I, that myself and Nick Porter, who is also the co-host um, and creator, um, he wanted to do a podcast. I was like, I kind of want to, I'm not sure, but he kind of coaxed me into doing it, mm-hmm. and we wanted to, you know, do a show that talks about pop culture well not really pop culture but just like a lot of the geeky things that we like but we didn't really see it from 
a, a perspective of like queers of color. Right. There was like other people of color doing them and, and other gay people doing it. But queers, queers of color is a whole different thing because we see things differently than what most people do. So we thought it'd be fun to do that and mix in things that we love like Drag Race um, and just like old classic movies and horror and everything else too. And it's been fun to do because Nick brings a perspective that I may miss and I hope I bring in a perspective um, um, in the show as well. And we have fun reviewing the movies, talking about comics. We just reviewed the entire Phoenix saga um, by the comic um, and really just talking about these issues. And, you know, while we're not as big as, you know, maybe Pop Save America or Pod Saves America, we have a following that is very loyal to us. And mm-hmm. I love the fact that they demand for us to put stuff out. Even if we were about, if we were late a day, I love that they will get onto us on social media. I like that we have a very strong fan base that will support us either way. And Nick has always been a very great help to making sure that everybody sees Mega Sheen. I mean, he does a lot of the great work of reaching out to um, people to be a part of the show, helping me with the ideas and everything else. So, you know, it wouldn't really be Mega Sheen without Nick. Um, and I really enjoy just talking about geeky stuff for over an hour. We can do that for a long time. And we really enjoy just throwing it all out there and just seeing how people react to it. So it's it's always a fun time. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about sitting and talking about the things you're passionate about. Yeah. Because when you put your passion on display, uh, it often finds that there are other people who are passionate about it as well. Mm-hmm. And they want to join in the conversation or yeah. listen to the conversation. And a lot of times when you're talking about entertainment or pop culture, the world at large kind of views it as something that you can engage with if you so choose. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of us, it is where we found ourselves. And I think it's important to provide these platforms. And I think that uh, what you are doing with Megasheen is great for that reason. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, and from Megasheen, I know you also host a lot of panels uh, at different <laughs> conventions. Yeah. I've, you know, I've seen you at Comic-Con. You just did a panel at WonderCon, uh, carrying on these conversations. One thing that I wanted to bring up last year at your panel at Comic-Con, mm-hmm. you had mentioned, and I'm putting you totally on the spot here, okay. that you have a particular affinity for Xanadu. Always. <laughs> Xanadu is one of the greatest movies ever made. I will devote, I will go to my grave saying that. Um, it is better than... I mean, the kids talk about Moulin Rouge. I always say that Moulin Rouge is a very cheap knockoff of Xanadu. Um, but it's one of those great movies that put together music, Olivia Newton-John, and mythology. I think because when Xanadu was out, I was a young kid, and that's when I was watching Super Friends, and Wonder Woman was is still my favorite character. And her world is mixed in mythology. And then you have Xanadu is mixed in mythology. And I love mythology. So you had all that together. And then you have roller skates and disco. <laughs> then it just made sense to me as a kid. And it just always stuck to me. Uh, it just stuck with me over the years. And it's funny. I just told my students about Xanadu. They looked up the trailer and they was like, wow, that's a lot. Um, but it's just a great movie it was so fun and it was just mixed in so many different things that just kind of wowed me as a kid and i still love it to this day what's uh funny too is you had talked about that on your panel at Mm comic-con but you were also a guest on the queer horror panel that i was hosting at Mm comic-con and in that discussion i remember that you singled out uh, a a great moment in horror for you was the roller skating vampire in fright night 2 and i'm starting to suspect victor (laughs) that you just maybe really dig movies about roller skating maybe so because i love roller skating i did it a lot as a kid uh, but speaking of Fright Night 2, that was the first time I really saw an androgynous character that I felt like was the best character I ever seen in my life. Um, because you, you just never saw anything like that. I mean, Belle was the name of the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because it's a Xanadu connection. If you saw Xanadu, there's a scene where it's this spider looking man crawling in between the legs of these dancers. That is Belle from, um, Fright Night 2? Night 2, yeah. Really? Yes. That I didn't know. Well, yeah. And so um, something about Bill just struck with me. I was like, that is a fascinating character. I want to know more about Bill. Um, and, you know, it's funny to think about 
that movie, how I like that so much more than I did the original Fright Night, even though Fright Night 2 was not the best. But I love that so much. It's because that's one of the first queer characters of color I ever saw. Next to um, Lamar Luttrell from Revenge of the Nerds. Those are the only two <laughs> characters of color that I could identify with when I was a kid. It is interesting. I mean, and it may be due to the fact that due to copyright issues, Fright Night uh, 2 has sort of fallen into obscurity mm-hmm. uh, stateside. It's just not available to, to watch anymore uh, unless you bootleg it, which... Yeah. Listeners, I leave that choice up to you. We cannot encourage (laughs) piracy here. Uh, But, you know, when talking about the history of queer horror and queer Mm -hmm. cinema, and you look especially at the movies at the 80s, you know, there is Nightmare on Elm Street 2. There's Mm -hmm. the discussion of, like, kind of the queer overtones of Mm -hmm. Lost Boys. And, of course, when you look at uh, Fright Night, Mm -hmm. not only does it include gay cast members, but there's that sort of like weird, Mm -hmm. like psychosexual relationship that goes on between Jerry Dandridge and his like oiled up manservant that he lives (laughs) with. Uh, And the fact that like everybody seems to be like way too invested in like people of the same sex in that movie. Yeah. Uh, And yet though Fright Night definitely pushes the boundaries of homoeroticism, uh, Fright Night 2 willingly embraces queerness Mm -hmm. by presenting uh, a androgynous character Mm -hmm. uh, out out in the open. It's not masked. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I really wish we discussed that movie more when we're talking about queer horror history. For the reason that you said is that especially when you think in the 80s where queer people were barely getting any play Mm -hmm. in horror movies. People of color were getting really crap roles in a lot of these movies. Here you have a queer person of color who is front and center and Mm -hmm. is fabulous. Yes. And I love that character. Also, Mm -hmm. Vampires on Roller Skates to me is just like a cool (laughs) idea. But yeah, I I really, really wish that we talked about that movie more. I do too. I agree. I I think one of the things that also we'll never forget about that movie was – I think in the beginning, when they killed one, of the, they killed one of the characters or somebody in the beginning of the movie. And there's a scene where they are like in a room. I think I think Charlie's watching them in the room, and mm-hmm. it's you know Belle's in the room with um, I forgot her name, um, the main vampires, um, and they were like you know like all like kissing and everything. And I was like, wait a minute, he has no problem with Belle right there next to him while he's all you know grinding and rolling up on this on, on on this woman here. I was like, that's kind of an interesting scene. Like you don't really see that. And it kind of made me feel like, okay, this this world is kind of out there. Um but yeah, we don't talk about that movie enough. Um and I saw the remake of Fright Night 2, which I was like, they could have kept that. But um That's the one that they're uh with Elizabeth Bathory, right? It has nothing to do with yeah, Fright Night 2. It, it, yeah, it yeah. doesn't. Although it does have strong lesbian themes. Yeah. What is it about the Fright Night franchise, with the exception of the remake with Colin Farrell, that's just like, this franchise kind of kind of gay? I don't know. I, I think they just wanted to play on the, you know, the 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 romanticism of vampires. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we really get that type of stuff until Anne Rice started throwing it out there. Because I felt like when you saw um, um, that movie. Oh, man. Interview with the vampire? vampire. Yeah, I couldn't even remember it. That's where you saw a lot of those overtones, um, especially between Amon and Louis. Um, that was like, oh my goodness, like, look at that. Um, but, you know, with vampires, it's always been that mysterious sexuality around them. So I felt like Friday was giving us a little bit of it to where we're still talking about it. We're still teased by it. And it's, it's kind of funny also when you think about the, the, the actors in the first movie because um, Amanda Pierce or Pierce? Oh, Amanda Pierce. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with her being lesbian, uh, Stephen Jeffries being a gay man, um, just seeing how all that just kind of played out in real life. And even with his character, Evil Ed, I always felt like he had a, a, a gay nature to him because he was that odd, weird kid. And it was that little speech that Jerry told him when he made him into a vampire, like, they won't pick on you anymore. Right. You will be this great thing. And I think a lot of us who were gay, well, who were confused about sexuality and growing up gay at the time would have probably welcomed that opportunity to be like, I can be something else than 
what I am right now. Sad, but that is an opportunity I think many of us would have took if that was real. Yeah, and I think that you hit a nail on the head too. When we watched a lot of these movies, there are overt things that they weren't coming out and saying, Mm -hmm. uh, probably because they didn't think they could get away with it or Mm -hmm. were not allowed. But I I was rewatching... Night of the Creeps recently. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and uh, which I love. Yeah. This is so good. Yeah. But uh, there's uh, the lead guy played by Jason Lively, and then mm-hmm. his friend. I had a crush on the lead guy. No, everybody thought he was ugly, but I thought he was kind of cute. You know, he's he's uh, Blake Lively's brother. Oh, yeah. The Lively family. Mm-hmm. There, those waters run deep. <laughs> From Teen Witch to Night of the Creeps to Gossip Girl, they're all over the place. Yeah. Uh, he. Um, his best friend in the movie, uh, they have this whole scene where the best friend like sits and talk. Even though mm-hmm. uh, Jason Lively is talking about how he's like all broken up about a girl, mm-hmm. the best friend kind of gives him this speech like, "I love you, and I just want to see you happy." Mm-hmm. And uh, watching it as a teen, I never like thought about it, but as an adult, I'm like, "Oh my god!" I'm like, "They slid a gay character in the Night of the Creeps," mm-hmm. and just because they didn't say it, like. A lot of us didn't know, but now yeah. that I'm older, I can see the coding. Yeah, I remember. I remember that movie, and I remember that part when he he made a video, he made a tape. Yeah, when he was dying, and he said, "I love you," and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, when I think about it now, like, "Oh my god!" Because that's what <laughs> that's that was. Yeah, that's what the situation you're going through at at those at, at that time is like. You can be with someone or be the friend of someone, and then you it all goes to hell and you have to say the things you need to say before you go out. And it's like, wow. When he said that, I was like, wow, wow. I never heard a man tell another man. I love you. That was the first time I ever saw that. <sighs> See, this is why these movies are important. <laughs> um, speaking of movies, uh, as we wind down the show, I always like to ask, what have you seen recently or what, uh, are you watching that inspires you or that you like? It doesn't have to be new, but like mm-hmm. what, what is, uh, on your watch list? Um, where I saw us and us, really inspire me um us is when you think about it the story is very simple but mm-hmm. the way they did it was very you know just beautiful and fantastic um i have shutter um and i've been watching a lot of some of those movies from the past um i will always love tourist trap because that is one of those out there movies of like what happens it's like um to me if they was going to make this new mutant movie as they've been trying to do, they could have like the new mutants could have been fighting this guy from tourist trap. Yeah. Cause he <laughs> has like these amazing mutant powers. They could have been fighting him because he, he was pretty powerful, you know? So I'm like, that, that could have been a fun mix. Um, but tourist trap is always fun to watch. Um, pretty much. Uh, I Netflix has really brought back Friday 13, all the other shows. Um, so I've been watching a lot of that as well. Um, but to be honest, um, just a lot of old movies. I just saw Jessica, let's scare Jessica to death. That was a little hard to watch only because I got tired of whispering. (laughs) (laughs) I always forget about that. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of, uh, mono, like, uh, monologues over. Yeah character like character thought i guess yeah. is what monologues don't bother me but there was that weird moment like let's scare jessica to death oh and dune did it a lot where yeah. people would just be staring at each other and you'd hear their thoughts yeah and like, i didn't want to but oh the movie i just recently watched over and i know it, it's the most it's one of the most gayest horror-ish like movies ever is eyes of laura mars i love the eyes of laura mars uh <laughs> i mean it's it's its own spectacle. I yes. will say that. You know, John Carpenter wrote that. Really? Yeah. Wow. Didn't know that. But yeah, the way if you can put a disco song to murder and blood and yeah. Isn't there a Streisand song in that as well? It is Prisoner. <laughs> that is. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, that is a part of that one. That's a part of the soundtrack, which you can't really find a soundtrack. But yeah. Which is a shame because I think it's probably the only time you're going to get that holy trinity of John Carpenter, Faye Dunaway, and Barbara Streisand together in a film. Yes. Uh, it was so dramatic. That film is so dramatic. It is. It's overthought. I think it was an earnest attempt to make an American version of an Italian giallo film. Because oh. uh, I see it being very influential, like influenced by yeah. like a Dario Argento kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
But I think, as as does happen when you intentionally or unintentionally appropriate like a style or a culture, it didn't necessarily translate the way I think they thought it was going to, which yeah. to me makes it delicious. Like that's yeah. like the idea of like in that kind of same way that something like the apple. Or, uh, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> the apple could have been a horror movie. It could have been. I mean, it was already wow. Yeah, though I think the apple, and you're probably gonna like take great <laughs> offense to this, because I think the apple would play uh, in a great double feature with Xanadu, like together. No, I agree. I agree because it was they both were out there. Yeah, with all the scenes and what have you. So yeah, I agree with that. It's like j- there's mythology involved. Yeah. Let's submit to a strange disco future. Yes, I whatever that means. Well, pimp out Jesus. That. <laughs> Or was it God? Well, yeah, that ending of the Apple was like... It's so weird. Yes. And to think that it came from like the same studio that did like all those tough like action movies of the 80s. So <laughs> like they're making the Apple, but now Cobra. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Cobra. Cobra was fun, though. Yeah, Cobra's fun. Well, here's a question for you. Uh, Cobra, which I consider to be a definitive Stallone action movie, yes. was released by <laughs> Scream Factory... Uh-huh. On their label. Is Cobra a horror film? You know, that's a good question because does Cobra to me falls in line with that movie. It's not called First Order, but it was that movie that um, Lewis James, no, Lewis, almost, well, I can't remember the name. It was somewhere he was a cop. He was chasing down this, I don't know, this devil worshiper type person. Right. I can't remember what that the name of it, but I remember that it's it's one of those I don't know what you want to call it, supernatural action movies. Like it, it falls in that. I don't know if I would call it horror horror though. I know. It is interesting though, because I think that eighties horror movies and eighties action movies, although there's a higher machismo level mm-hmm. that I think it, it kind of pushes me away a lot yeah. from the action movies. They tend to share a sensibility of over the topness. Yeah. That no, um, not to be confused with over the top, the arm mm-hmm. wrestling movie starring Stallone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh god. The uh, because the gore in some of those eighties action movies mm-hmm. is sometimes worse than some of the horror movies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Lou Diamond Phillips. That was his name. Um, yeah, I think about. I think there was a time they was trying to take horror and action and really put them all together mm-hmm. because that, they thought that might be a new hybrid of things that will work. I think it still can work. It right. just has to be done really well. But I, you know, it's interesting to look back at those movies. That was that one Charles Bronson movie where it was like this. The the killer was like really interesting because he at the end he was like running down the street naked trying to get oh ten to midnight yeah yeah that movie is you want to talk about a movie that's like homoerotic yeah because the killer only kills people when he's naked yeah because he feels like he I I think the gist of the story I feel like this is really bad science but it's also the eighties so they didn't maybe necessarily know about DNA mapping uh, (laughs) is that the killer would get completely naked and he would kill people because by being naked he would leave no DNA evidence behind which I really question yeah uh yeah but yeah so at the end bronson is chasing this like falcon studios model down the street yeah. who's running like full sprint naked yeah yeah i liked that movie probably yeah. not for the reasons that yeah I, yeah that, <laughs> no i agree with you i think i was really attracted to him and that scares me i was attracted to it but that's not the first killer that i was attracted to there was a movie that had anthony rapp called far from home oh that had um um drew barrymore was in it and anthony rapp was a killer he was a teen killer but i was attracted to him well it's fantasy we can yeah yeah, because i uh silent night deadly night billy uh, i always thought was like so sexy so well he he's still he's not bad looking now who Billy? Yeah, I haven't seen him since well, he, well, since the eighties. Well, wow. no, he's been on a couple of things. I googled him, and he's he'll show up at some horror stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! So uh, we talked about Strange Lore Volume Two. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Megashin is ongoing. But what else is in your near future? What are you working on that you can talk about? Um, well, something I well one good thing I can say about Strange Lore is it's it is gaining traction. People are paying attention to it. Um, I can't say too much, but I did have a a meeting about it which i was very excited about because i didn't even realize that people were really that interested in it um so that was nice to see um and you know the excitement that you know when i was talking with people about it um and also i'm trying to get i have to get the courage up to 
um, sign it off when I go to like sign a book and stuff. When I go to Comic Con, I've been asked to like table the book, and so that's going to be fun to do. Um, what I'm doing now, um, I am working on a couple of other type of things. I really want to create um, a witchcraft story that's based off Black people, um, just because I feel like we just never. We're never really a part of that world. And if Mm -hmm. we are, it's always secondary or voodoo. And I want to get out of that. Um, But I also want to do more supernatural tales. So I've been really kind of mapping out what does that look like from like, for example, what if there was a, like the Green Book is not the movie Green Book, but the, <laughs> the book book about the Green Book about, you know, towns you shouldn't go into. What if there was a book about towns you shouldn't go into because of the supernatural elements there and kind of get into stuff like that, which is kind of like some stuff that's coming out from other people. But I want to get into stuff like that, certain type of demons and Pumpkinhead was really something that was inspiring to me. So kind of playing around with stuff like that, too. So just writing a few things, doing a couple outlines. But um, Strange Lore is a big priority right now. So um, I said after Comic-Con, I will officially start writing uh, Strange Lore 3. Well, this is a natural progression into what my final question of the show usually is. Mm -hmm. But... You will be at Comic-Con this year. Yes. So people who are interested in your book and you can come and meet you there. And I'm yep. going to encourage them to do so. And you'll be doing a panel, yes? Um, yes. Uh, we'll we'll do another um, black and queer panel. Um, also, I'm working on an anthology, a queer anthology called Crush um, with Tara Avery. And we are, um, I'm co-editing it with Tara. Um, and so it's going to be about the crushes you had in your life, but mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of supernatural fantasy tales. I love that. Well, <laughs> I want to know more about that. Uh, so other than Comic-Con uh, coming up this July, I know that you all out there know that, though. Uh, where can people find you, Victor? Um, you can find me on the internet, um, defending Kamala Harris on, um, <laughs> um, on Twitter, Wonderman5 with two N's. Um, you can find me there and mostly there, mostly there. Great. Well, you are a great and powerful presence on Twitter. I enjoy following Victor <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, Victor, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It really means a lot. I have been waiting to have you on and chat with you for so long. So uh, thank you. Well, thank you. This was fun. Listeners, please keep up with Victor biweekly on Megasheen, as well as seek out Strange Lore. It is definitely worth your time. It is an awesome story, and you need to be caught up for volume two. Uh, my name is Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.